Good morning. Welcome to our 11 o'clock worship sermon. Uh, I'm Pastor Stephen, the teaching elder of our local church here in Phillipsburg, Kansas. We thank you for joining us and for uh, listening to our preaching and teaching ministry. Uh, It is our prayer that you and your family are benefiting. Uh, You are growing in the faith and the knowledge of the scripture. Uh, You are faithful in obedience to the Lord. And if you are searching for a um, local church, we invite you to come to ours here in Phillipsburg. But we do stress that it is important to uh, be a part of a local church uh, that has uh, a plurality of elders, uh, that, that, that teaches the word, uh, that prays and sings songs to the Lord and participates in the sacraments weekly. And I pray that uh, you would find such a local church where you and your family can be uh, connected to and serving in. Uh, During the 11 o'clock service, we are uh, going through 1 Peter. Uh, We are in chapter 5. We only have a few weeks left of this letter. And then we're going to pivot to the Old Testament and begin with 1 Samuel. So our text today is in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. We're going to read and then examine verses 1 through 4. The scripture says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, The first thing I want to point out in, in form of an introduction this morning is the way that Peter sets this passage up. Two things I want to point out. Number one, I want to point out that there is a reason why Peter pivots from talking about suffering and persecution to directly instructing the elders of the local church. Remember, from chapter 3, verse 8, through chapter 4, Peter's context has been suffering, nothing but suffering, persecution, uh, being persecuted because you're doing the right things in the world. You're living faithfully. You're living righteously. You're suffering the same way that Jesus did. That's a large part of this letter. I mean, it's, it's almost two chapters worth of teaching. But immediately after Peter devotes a large amount of time to suffering, he addresses the elders. And he does that on purpose. And the purpose is to encourage and instruct the elders who, if they are performing their task faithfully and are diligent, they're going to receive the brunt of the persecution. You see, elders have the responsibility uh, to proclaim the entire counsel of God. 
Not just the good stuff, the, the happy stuff, the stuff that, you know, makes you feel nice and, and assured of salvation. No, even the stuff that we don't receive very well, like correction, rebuke, talking about sin, church discipline, excommunication, right? We, we don't like to talk about those things. But if an elder is faithful to the task, then he will and he must. Therefore, the elders are going to offend some people. They're going to offend sinners. Sinners don't like to be called sinners. We know this. We don't like to be rebuked. We don't like to be corrected. None of us appreciates being told that we're wrong. And if an elder is faithfully fulfilling his office, he's going to do this. Paul tells Timothy to, you know, be ready in season and out of season to faithfully preach the word of God to correct, rebuke, exhort, admonish, you know? That's, that's part of the job. And so if an elder is faithful to the job, to the calling, he's going to offend some folks. And there's going to be some times where uh, suffering and persecution will be directed at them. Chapter 5 of 1 Peter uh, is uh, the final section of this letter. It includes some general instructions to the elders, to young people, uh, some final instructions to the entire church as a whole. Uh, Peter will end the letter with some words about those who are with him. He mentions uh, Silas and, and those who are at Peter's church where he's also an elder at. So Peter is speaking from experience. And notice the second thing for the introduction I want to point out is notice the seriousness of the charge. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you. I'm a fellow elder. I, I have witnessed the sufferings of Christ. I am a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed. I've already seen it. When it's revealed again, I'm going to be a part of it again. So what I'm saying to you or I'm about to say to you, I have some clout. I know what I'm talking about. And so listen to my words. And these instructions that I'm giving to you elders, these should be received of utmost importance. Listen to what I have to say is essentially what Peter is saying because I'm the apostle Peter. I am a fellow elder. I know what you experience. I know the job. I was an apostle. I knew Christ. I experienced what he experienced. I saw it. I was there. And when the Lord returns, I'm going to be there too. So I know about suffering. I know about leading the church. And I know about the Christian faith, and serving her faithfully. I want to do two things for us this morning. 
I want to explain the biblical history of elder leadership because I, I, I believe that this is often misunderstood today. And the second thing I want to do, I want to address the four features of elder leadership that Peter mentions in our text. There are four features about elder leadership that Peter addresses. But first, I want to explain a biblical history, briefly explain a biblical history of elder leadership. The concept of elder leadership and the office of elders isn't a New Testament concept. It isn't exclusively a New Testament concept. Let me let me say that. Many people think it is. When we talk about elders or pastors, you know, in, in that sense, overseers and bishops, we, we think that it's just a New Testament concept, but it's not. Also, the office of an elder or elders uh, isn't exclusive to the Judeo-Christian faith. Other religions have a body of elders. Uh, for instance, in Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph buried his father Jacob, the scripture says that his funeral was attended by Egyptian elders. So even other nations, uh, pagan nations, had a group of men who served as elders. So elders isn't exclusively to the New Testament, and it isn't exclusive to the Judeo-Christian faith. Very popular idea among religions. In the Old Testament, the, the elders were leading men of the city. And they were men of integrity. Uh, they had wisdom. Uh, they supplied counsel to kings, to prophets, to the people. They were very reputable. If an elder came to your house, it was a big deal for the household. It's a man of honor in your presence. When the Israelites were slaves to Egypt, they had elders. Back in Exodus chapter 3, when God first revealed himself to Moses, uh, God commanded Moses to go to Egypt and to speak to the elders of Israel. Then on the night of the Passover, Moses commanded the elders to prepare the Passover meal and to distribute the elements to the households, which was very similar to what Jesus did with his apostles. He commanded his apostles to prepare the Passover meal, to prepare the elements that were used in the first Lord's Supper. After the Exodus, elders were appointed to assist Moses while the nation was in the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 18, the scripture provides qualifications for the elders. They were men who fear God, trustworthy, and they hated a bribe. Eventually, the number of elders who assisted Moses came to be 70. Do you know what's interesting about that number 70? In the New Testament, the Jewish Sanhedrin consisted of 70 men. 
plus the high priest. The purpose of the Sanhedrin in the Gospels was to imitate the 70 elders plus Moses of the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 24, the elders were chosen by God to accompany Moses and sing the glory of the Lord. They witnessed the glory of the Lord. Remember, Peter mentions that in 1 Peter chapter 5, that as a fellow elder, he has seen the glory of the Lord, and he will see it again along with them when Christ returns. In Numbers chapter 11, the scripture says that the elders possessed the same spirit as Moses. God took Moses' his spirit, the spirit that was on him, and, and put it on the elders. The elders of the Old Testament were not randomly selected men. They were men who were called by God, they met certain qualifications, and they possessed the authority of God. As we'll see, very similar to the New Testament elders. Called by God, they met certain qualifications, and they possessed authority. Listen to these scriptures about the function of an elder in the Old Testament. Leviticus 4.15 The elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Leviticus chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And the Lord said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. So we see the role of elders expanding. They went from giving counsel to Moses, being men of wisdom, to now experiencing and being used in the consecration of the priest and in animal sacrifices. Those are pretty big deals. Well, what about during the time of the prophets? What do the elders do then? They continue to offer wise counsel. They continue to help lead Israel. They continue to have a role in worship. For instance, Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 26. Disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet, while the law perishes from the priest and counsel from the elders. A reason why Israel was led into Babylonian captivity was because the elders stopped giving wise counsel. They had become corrupted along with the priests, along with the kings and the rest of the leaders of Israel. They all became corrupted and because they became corrupted, the people were corrupted and the entire nation was led into captivity. Then after the Babylonian captivity, when the Jews returned to Jerusalem, the elders helped Ezra and Nehemiah rebuild the city. They helped rebuild the altar, the sanctuary. They helped participate in the worship of God. Go and read Ezra chapter 6. Elders are prominent in the return of captivity. It would be a massive mistake to claim that the elder leadership was only prominent in the New Testament. 
That claim would be completely false. If you believe that the function of an elder, the body of elders were only in the New Testament, you would be completely wrong. But something happened in the Gospels and in the book of Acts when it comes to the office of an elder. When we turn over to the Gospels, the elders are portrayed as villains. They were associated with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. The elders of Israel opposed Jesus. They opposed his ministry. Jesus accused them of teaching their traditions as the word of God and for teaching the word of God to be merely tradition. So they were hypocrites. Jesus warned the people not to follow them. Not to trust them. And so the Israel's history, Israel's history of, of elders went from them being prominent, wise, reputable, reputable men to men of corruption. To be avoided. From dignified to avoided. So why would the apostles appoint elders to be leaders of the local church? Because of the gospel. Because of the gospel. The apostles uh, took deliberate steps uh, in raising up a new generation of leaders for the church. And they did this through the gospel. As men came to faith, they repented of their sins. They sat underneath the teaching of the apostles that elder office became sanctified again. And the men who were appointed were Christian men, dignified, regenerated, believers, followers of Christ, lovers of God. And so now, the office of elder could be entrusted to lead the church, and that's what the apostles did. There are only 13 apostles and they needed assistance to lead the church. They couldn't be everywhere at the same time. So they appointed as men became believers and they proved themselves worthy of the office. The elders appointed them to be leaders of the local churches that were planted. And this is where men like Titus and Timothy, Barnabas and Silas, come into the picture. Uh, the apostles trusted Timothy and Titus and Barnabas and Silas with the authority to appoint elders. And this is why we have the qualifications of elders listed in 1 Timothy and Titus chapter 1. Barnabas and Silas were members of Paul's missionary teams and they assisted him in appointing elders. So the apostles gave the authority to certain men, and then these certain men began to train and to appoint elders in the local church. So by the time that Paul's 
missionary journeys have ended, elders have already been set up. They have already been faithfully serving. In Acts chapter 20, Paul confirms that the Holy Spirit has revealed to him that his public ministry would be soon ending. And the apostle calls the elders together and he gives them final instructions and he hands them the keys. He says, you shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Combine that with what Peter says here in chapter 5, how the elders of the churches of Asia Minor are to rule and exercise oversight and shepherd the flock. It's clear that there's a passing of the baton here from the, from the apostles to the elders. Even James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, he acknowledges in his New Testament letter the leadership of the elders. Instead of the church members seeking out the apostles in order for them to be healed, those who are sick should come before the elders. And the elders will anoint them with holy oil. The elders will pray for them. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul addresses the elders as the leaders of the church. Even the church in Jerusalem, the largest and the first church that started in the New Testament, they had elders. In Acts chapter 15, when Paul and Barnabas returned to Jerusalem after the first missionary journey, that Jerusalem church had elders. The apostle John in 3 John, he calls himself an elder. So according to him, there's elder leadership. So four of the main leaders of the New Testament church, three apostles, Peter, Paul, and John, and the brother of our Lord Jesus, four prominent leaders of the New Testament church all acknowledge elders as the leaders of the church. That's, that's remarkable, guys. That's remarkable. Four prominent leaders of the New Testament all acknowledge at, in their letters that the authority of the church has been passed on to the elders. We, we have been trained to think that uh, the apostles ruled the church in the New Testament and they ruled it alone until their death. And that isn't true. Even while they were alive, even during the course of their ministry, the baton has been passed. And as the church began to grow, they began to expand throughout the world. Those local churches needed leaders. And more elders were appointed to lead them. So the question isn't, do elders rule the church? That answer is obvious. Of course they do, according to scripture. The question should be, when did this transition of power occur? Not if. But when? 
And we don't know the exact time. But if we take the, the entirety of the New Testament and, 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 and look at what the Scripture says, it's clear that even during the, the time of the apostles, like I said, that, that power was being passed from the apostles to the elders. In Acts chapter 11, Paul and Barnabas, they begin their first missionary journey. They appoint elders in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas, they say goodbye to the church. They leave, they appoint elders. Interesting about Antioch. Antioch's the first church where believers were called Christians. During the middle of his first missionary journey, there's elders in Jerusalem. That's the same church where Peter and James were leaders of. They also had elders. That's pretty significant. The apostles are still alive. It's early in their ministry. And they're already training men to take over and to lead the church. As Paul traveled the world during his first, second, and third missionary journeys, uh, he appointed elders in every town. He tells Titus to do the same in Titus chapter 1, appoint elders in every city, because that's what Paul did. Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in every church. Acts 14, 23, the scripture says Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church. And then Paul and Barnabas committed the church to the Lord in whom they had believed. Acknowledging that their work was done. The church was set up. They had believing members. They had elders. They were ready to go. And so Paul and Barnabas left. They entrusted the church to the elders. That's the biblical history of elder leadership. Clearly, both the Old and New Testaments affirm the office of an elder. But despite what the scripture teaches about elder leadership, many churches still misunderstand the doctrine. Instead of having a qualified plurality of men to lead the church, local churches typically have what? A senior pastor and his staff. That's the ecclesiology of many local churches. They'll have a senior pastor, an associate pastor, a youth pastor, a campus pastor, a, a teenager pastor, a music pastor, children's pastor. They'll have church councils that consist of a senior pastor, his secretary, the church treasurer. That's the leadership team of many churches. Is it biblical? Of course not. It's not even close. Considering the biblical evidence for elder leadership, why do churches refuse to adopt this form of ecclesiology? Ecclesiology simply means the study of the nature of the church, such as the government of the church. There are two reasons, in my, in my opinion, why I believe Although there's biblical evidence for elder leadership, that churches still refuse to adopt this form of ecclesiology. Two reasons. Reason number one, 
because churches are lazy in training men. Discipleship. It's discipleship. The lack of elder leadership of qualified men exposes the church's weakness in discipleship. They meet on Sunday morning. The preacher typically preaches a tip, a topical sermon. They have a fellowship meal, maybe. Then they go their separate ways. They come back Wednesday for prayer and a Bible study. Uh, again, they leave. They come back. It's, it's a cycle, a never-ending cycle of just treading water. There, there is really no form of discipleship. Well, how do you disciple men in order to have a plurality of elders? Well, one, you have to have a, a system of prayer inside the church where every member is praying for the Lord to open this door to bring men and to, and to help train up men for elder leadership. Number two, you need a preaching and teaching ministry that's faithful to the entire counsel of the Lord. You can't preach topical sermons and train people. You have to preach exegetically through the word and allow the Holy Spirit to make the application in the heart. Third, you have to have consistent fellowship of talking about sermons, talking about spiritual things, visiting the homes, one-on-one, -on -one, meeting with the elders, praying together. It's, it's got to be more than just, hey, that was a great sermon, man. It's got to be more than topical. You got to have conversations. Fourth, let those men teach. Let them get their feet wet. Let them teach a Sunday evening. Let them teach a Bible study. Let them teach a men's fellowship. Let them run a prayer group. At our church, we, we have monthly men's fellowships where each month is, is led by a different man. We encourage them to lead. They have it at their home. They prepare I encourage the men of our church to, to lead our Tuesday morning prayer time. We have meetings with the men of our church. Times of fellowship. There's, there's discussion of the sermon of, of Christian things. I don't want to use the word aggressive, but when it comes to discipleship in our church, I think we're fairly aggressive. And it's not just the men, it's even the young men, the men's sons. We're desiring for them that the Lord would raise them up to be elders so that we can plant churches in the future with the elders of the young men in our church. But this is a reason why churches don't adopt the elder leadership model because their discipleship is bad. They don't have any training. They don't have any desire. Weak discipleship. The second reason why I think elder leadership 
is rejected by many churches today is because elder leadership disqualifies women. You go to any church's website, view their leadership page, and you'll find a woman in the leadership. She will be the children's minister, children's coordinator, youth pastor, music pastor, women's discipleship pastor. Churches refuse to adopt the biblical model of elder leadership for the sake of inclusivity. They want to be inclusive. They want to do the popular thing, which is to have women serve on leadership teams. That's not biblical. And so they reject the word of God for the praise and acceptance of man. To look like the world, to be worldly. Pray for churches. Pray for churches that they would adopt the biblical model of pastoral leadership with the elder leadership. It's biblical. And since it's biblical, the Lord will bless that church. That church will be blessed because of a a plurality of qualified men leading it. A lot of awful things happen to churches where one man assumes the role of the leader. Awful. The second part of our text this morning addresses the four features of biblical elder leadership. What are, uh, what is the purpose of elders? What do they do? What do they provide? How do they function? Peter points out four different features of elder leadership. He says it is a shared leadership. It is pastoral leadership. It is a leadership of overseer, right? Governing authority, power, and it's also a servant leadership. Peter says in verse one, so I exhort the elders among you. According to scripture, elder leadership is not provided by one elder, but by a plurality. It is a shared leadership position. In every instance where the term elder is addressed in scripture, the leadership is always plural in number. It's always a shared responsibility. The number of men who assisted Moses were 70. The number of men that Moses reported to in in Egypt when the Israelites were captives were plural. The group of men who witnessed the consecration of Aaron's priesthood was plural. According to Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the worship of God in Israel was done by a plurality of elders. Even the prophets acknowledged a plurality of men serving as elders. Over in the New Testament, the churches that the apostles planted, they appointed a plurality of elders. In every single instance, not once was a single man, a senior pastor, appointed to lead the church. In Paul's instructions to Timothy and Titus, they were appoint, to appoint a plurality of elders. Listen to these verses. Acts 11.30. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Acts 14.23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Acts 20.17. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. 
in one local church, there was a plurality of elders. The leadership was shared. And this concept of shared leadership wasn't exclusive just to elders. The apostles were a plurality of men. The deacons chosen in Acts 6 were a plurality of men. The priest, it was a priesthood, a shared leadership. The only exception was a king. Israel was a monarchy which resembled the being of God. God is one. He is the, the king of Israel. And so Israel was a monarchy. The prophets were plural in number. Here's the part that confuses me, though. In many churches today, although they appoint one senior pastor, they still have a plurality of deacons. You ever notice that? Many churches, you look at their leadership team, they, they have one senior pastor. They, they say he's a lead pastor. But they have a plurality of deacons. And you ask them, well, well why do you have a plurality of deacons? And they'll say, well, chapter 6 of Acts tells us a plurality of deacons was selected. The Bible tells us so. Well, why not plurality of elders then? Why just one senior pastor? It's hypocritical. What does this shared leadership look like among the elders? Well, they are a council of equals. They are equal in authority. Uh, they are uh, equal in their office. None is greater than the other. Uh, they all have been called. They all have the same qualifications. They're all men of dignity, reputable, wise unto salvation. But that doesn't mean they have equal gifts. They're not equal in their giftedness. And Peter abstains from addressing their giftedness in the text. When we talk about a shared leadership and a council of equals or first among equals, we don't mean it's, a, it's equal in gifts. Each elder is equal in authority, but not in their gifts. The Holy Spirit is the one responsible in gifting men, and he gifts men according to his own will. So among the elders, you may have a greater measure of teaching with one elder, but a greater measure of administration in another. Another elder may have a greater measure of hospitality or wisdom. The gifts may not be equally distributed, but the responsibility and the authority is. The respect, the dignity is equal. First among equals can also be seen with the apostles. Take Peter, for example. He possessed the same authority as the other apostles, but his gifts differed. In our text this morning, Peter refers to himself as a fellow elder. The apostle John was also an elder of the church. To my knowledge, those are the only two apostles who were considered elders. Why? Because they had the gifts. The other apostles didn't. Paul's gift was evangelism. Peter and Andrew, brothers, equal apostles, but they didn't have equal gifts. 
The elder leadership is also pastoral. That's another feature. Peter says in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. Elders are portrayed in the scripture as men who care for the spiritual life of the church. They protect the church from false teaching. They protect the church from false teachers. Paul tells the elders in Acts 20 to be on guard for the flock. He called false teachers savage wolves. He anticipated these wolves trying to sneak into the church in order to corrupt the church. No wonder an elder must possess sufficient Bible knowledge. He must be able to refute those who are in opposition. The elder cares for the flock of God by feeding them. He must be faithful to the scripture. He must be able to teach. He needs to rebuke sinners with confidence. He needs to refute those who oppose the truth with confidence. And this is heavy labor. Feeding and guarding the flock, shepherding the flock is heavy labor. Therefore, the scripture says the elders who labor in preaching and teaching should be considered of double honor. They are worthy of their wages. Are you aware of how heavy of a burden this is? Can you imagine the responsibility of caring for the spiritual life of 50 to 100 people? We struggle in our home, you know, with just us, our wife, and children. Can you imagine 50 to 100 people? As shepherds, the elders must meet the needs of their sheep, visiting the sick, comforting the bereaved, strengthening the weak, praying for them, providing counsel for couples who are thinking about getting married, who are getting married, maybe struggling with their marriage. Managing the many day-to-day details related to the life of the church. And not only that, the elder has his own soul to be concerned about. The soul of his family, the soul of his wife to care for. This is hard work. It's heavy lifting. The leadership among the elders is also um, exercising oversight. Verse 2, Peter says, plain English, exercise oversight. This is the one feature that many church members stumble over. Members have often left churches over this. Who governs a church? Does the longest tenured church member? No. No. Those who give the most financially? No. Deacons? No. The loudest church members during a business meeting who seem to bully everyone else? No. Elders govern the church. It is right here in plain writing. Not the prophets, not the evangelists, not the wealthiest church members. Elders exercise oversight. And Paul says the same thing. In Acts chapter 20, he tells the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. 
usurping the power of the church from the elders, you're fighting against the Lord. Yeah. By not having elders exercise oversight, you are fighting against the Lord. You're in opposition to God. Well, you know, our senior pastor and church secretary and the church council and and the youth, no, you're fighting against God. Elders exercise oversight. The Bible even refers to them as overseers because of their oversight. Servant leadership, another feature of elder leadership. Paul, uh, Peter says, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The Bible demands elders to live out the principles of the Christian faith in front of the church. Do elders expect their members to give, to serve, and to fellowship? Then elders must also give, serve, and fellowship. Leaders are servants first. Jesus taught this to his apostles, and then the apostles passed this on to the elders. They must be willing to serve. The money, popularity, the gifts, the respect, these things cannot be the reason why elders serve. They must serve because God has called them, and because they have a desire to serve in this capacity. They must be motivated by love. A love for serving God and a love for serving God's people. Elders cannot serve from an unwanted obligation. If an elder serves grudgingly, he cannot genuinely care for the church. He will be miserable. He will be ineffective. There'll be this constant fear crippling his heart, knowing that since he is, he is serving grudgingly and without a desire, he will have to face the chief shepherd who will hold him accountable. But if he serves faithfully and cheerfully, he will receive an unfading crown of glory. Uh, this unfading crown of glory uh, represents a wreath of flowers like a garland. It's the, it's the crown that in the Greco-Roman culture, athletes would win. This would be their reward or one of their rewards for winning the race. A crown of flowers would be placed upon their head. But those flowers would fade. The crown that we receive for being faithful as serving elders is one that will never perish. Our labor should bring us joy. Will it be hard? Absolutely. Uh, will, will our sin nature try to convince us to quit and to lay down the task and to walk away? 100%. Have you ever did a study on, on, on elders and, and suicide rates? Very high. Very high. We must serve with joy. We must be confident in the calling. We must uh, be moved to serve because of love and desire to serve, not because of obligation. Notice how Peter does a back and forth. 
in our text. Uh, go back to uh, verse number one. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Verse two, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. See the back and forth? You're supposed to govern the church, but don't do it in a domineering way. You're supposed to shepherd the flock of God, but don't be, uh, but don't be compulsed to do that. Be willingly, as God will have you. Do this, but don't do it so in order to make money. Do it because you're eager to serve. See the back and forth? There's balances. There's checks and balances. And that's the purpose of plurality of elders as well, as a, a, a checks and balance. The elders govern among themselves. They hold each other accountable. But this examination of elders isn't only for the elders. It's also for the members of the church. This letter was written to the church. Can you imagine opening up a letter written by an apostle and the apostle claims that this man, that these men in your church who are called elders have authority over you? What's your responsibility now? To submit to them, to love them, to speak well of them, to obey them. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your elders, submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. It would be unprofitable for the life of the church if the elders had sorrow and grief on account of your ingratitude, on account of your disobedience, that your disobedience, your unfaithfulness is the reason why your elders have sorrow and grief and want to leave. Don't let that be the case. It's impossible to cause trouble for your elders without bringing trouble to your own soul. Did you get that? It's impossible to cause trouble for your elders without bringing trouble to your own soul. It'd be no advantage to you if you cause your elders sorrow and grief and they groan because of you. Submit to them, love them, pray for them, care for them, care for their physical needs. 